Hello from Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to State of the Vote. Every Tuesday until election, which is right around the corner, I'm going to break down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and the Senate and ultimately set the foundation for power dynamics leading up to the presidential election. Politicology has partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes. They are the mathletes behind major outlets like The Economist, BuzzFeed News, Fox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. If you want to follow along today's discussion, DecisionDeskHQ.com is where you can find their House and Senate elections models, and they update those daily. I am joined by the wonderful Kyle Williams from the DDHQ team. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress and the Electoral College in 2020. He also holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, thanks for making the time. And when this is all over, when uh, when we've recovered from our long sleep after the uh, the midterms, I'd love to grab a beer and talk to you about. Theoretical physics. I really can't wait. This conversation has been a long time coming. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I look back at those days fondly. It's been a long time since I've gotten to reminisce about that stuff. (laughs) Since we're both highly caffeinated this morning, let's dig in. Uh, We gave an overview of the issues and concerns last week shaping the election environment. Why don't we look at the environment again? Any major changes over the last week and any significant shifts in the generic ballot? So the generic ballot hasn't shifted dramatically since our last discussion. That Right now, Republicans lead our generic ballot average by about 1.8 points. That's pretty similar to where it was last week. So we're still in an environment that is pretty favorable to Republicans, not surprising given where Biden's uh, favorability numbers are, given what sort of economic numbers around inflation are. So that top-level uh, environmental variable, that generic ballot hasn't changed a whole lot. And similarly, our House top-line forecast for who's likely to win the House hasn't changed a whole lot either. That Right now, we give Republicans around a 78% chance to win control of the House. I think last time we spoke, it was around 79%. And right now, we think Republicans are likely to end up with something like 230 seats to 205 seats for for Democrats. And that generic ballot number is really tightly connected to that uh, House top-line number because in the House, again, we have lots of candidates who don't necessarily have have a high level of name ID, uh, not a lot of House polling. So a lot of that sort of House top-line number is being driven by these questions around what does the national environment look like Overall. So, because the national environment hasn't really changed much since our last discussion, our view of what's going to happen in the House hasn't really changed a whole lot either. That Republicans still strong favorites to win. Democrats don't have zero chance. You know, again, to go back some of, to, to some of our earlier discussions, you know, 20% is not 0%. One in five is not zero. But Republicans look like they're entering election week as pretty strong favorites to flip control of the House of Representatives. But if you're going to a casino in my hometown of Las Vegas, uh, one in five odds, not great. Not great. Not great. That <laughs> I, I would, you know, suffice it to say, I would much rather be Kevin McCarthy than Nancy Pelosi heading into, into next week. On the, the Senate side, um, the Senate's a little more complicated for reasons we've discussed, that sort of all House districts look on some level the same, that you have lots of candidates who mostly are low name ID, every seat's up every two years. The Senate, you have a lot more idiosyncrasies around, you know, who are the candidates? These are people who have much higher name ID, and every two years, the set of the class of Senate seats that are up is, is different. And so every two years, control of the Senate tends to come down to a handful of seats that are competitive, just based on which seats are pretty much randomly up that year. And so as you've heard us say, and as you'll hear me say again, 
again, control of the Senate this year comes largely down to the same four decisive states you've heard us talk about again and again and are going to hear us continue to talk about, uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. And over the past week, we've seen things basically continue to trend in Republicans' favor. That, uh, Like we've seen in some previous midterm years, like I think I've mentioned 2014 before, uh, you know, o- over a lot of 2022, it looked like Democrats were on track to do better than we expected the president's party to do during a midterm year. That people like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania looked like they were doing shockingly well. Mark Kelly in Arizona, the incumbent Democrat, looked like he was doing sort of shockingly well. Uh, but over the past month, we've really seen things sort of, you know, you might almost say revert, uh, revert to the mean a little bit in terms of performance for the president's party in a midterm year when the president is not popular. Um, so to put some numbers onto that, uh, in Georgia's Senate seat, uh, incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock, who won by the, the skin of his teeth in 2020, uh, is up for re-election. And we've seen him uh, his odds of probability drop by more than 10% over the past week or so. That Right now, we only give Raphael Warnock something like a 52% chance to win compared to 48% for Herschel Walker, which that's basically a, a coin flip. So Georgia Senate, really, really high level of uncertainty around who's going to win. And Walker, Herschel Walker, actually now leads our polling average for the first time in, in months, I want to say. Um, so that's a race where uh, Democrats' odds of winning have declined significantly. And you know, really, that's not something that should shock us. Like Georgia is a state that only very recently has even become competitive for for Democrats. So the idea that Democrats were going to easily win a Senate race in Georgia in a midterm year was always sort of weird. And now we see the situation sort of converging to more like what you would have expected if you'd asked me in 2021, what do you think is going to happen? A similar situation in Pennsylvania. So there's been lots of discussion in the media around um, John Fetterman and his health concerns. And over a lot of the summer, he was posting polling numbers that seemed almost implausibly high, that throughout the summer he was uh, seeing poll results with him leading uh, Dr. Oz by double digits sometimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, as there's been more media discourse around his his health and, you know, uh, I think especially as we get into the last week of undecided voters or independent voters or, you know, marginally attached voters making up their minds, we've seen all these things come together and there have been a string of polls that have shown uh, Dr. Oz up for some of the first polls where Dr. Oz has been up in a long, long time. And after we incorporated those, uh, actually Fetterman just barely leads our polling average. Uh, now, I think Fetterman has a lead of less than a point in our polling average. And so his odds over this past week have declined from, I think, 53% to around 43%. So for the first time, we actually see Dr. Oz uh, favored in our forecast, even though it's just by a very, very slim margin that, again... Let, let's linger on Pennsylvania for just a second. So you've got Dr. Oz now with a 53% chance of winning that Senate race. That's different from the polling average. That's his probability of winning. Uh, and that's up about 10 points from when we spoke last week. So can you comment on why? what's your take on why that race is moving so quickly? So... At a sort of high level, we've seen a lot of polls that have been a lot more favorable to Dr. Oz over the past week than we've seen over the course of the the past summer. Now, again, there's always a question, what do you want to attribute that to? Is that because of media discourse around um, John Fetterman's health? Is that because independent voters are in this last week making up their minds? And it's often really hard, almost impossible to disentangle how much of this shift is due to which particular factor. The real answer is it's probably some combination of all of those things. But what we've seen is this velocity 
of polls where Dr. Oz is a lot more competitive than we've seen over, you know, again, the past three or four months. And as all those have come in sort of in pretty rapid succession over the past week, the model hears that and the model says, oh, like this guy who I thought wasn't particularly likely to win, the situation seems to be changing pretty rapidly on the ground and the model shifts in response to that. That if we see these polls where Oz is actually leading, you know, that that's significant in, uh, from the mo- from a modeling perspective in terms of like does Dr. Oz actually have a shot? Okay, take us to Arizona. So Arizona is another state where we saw over the entire course of the summer that uh, Mark Kelly, who's the incumbent Democrat running for re-election, looked like he had a shockingly strong chance of winning. That I think if you go back to uh, even like Oct- early October, uh, he had something like an 80% chance of winning in, in our forecast. And what we've seen over the past month is there have been polls that have come in that even if they don't necessarily show um, Blake Masters, who's the Republican nominee winning, they show Mark Kelly leading Blake Masters by a much smaller margin that we've seen polling margins for Mark Kelly that, again, are frankly much closer in line to how I think you would expect a Democrat to be performing in in Arizona. And so right now in our forecast, I think Mark Kelly has around a 70% chance of winning, which, again, if you think about you know, 2012, 2008, how were Democrats performing in 2012, uh, 2008? Uh, that's pretty, that's quite good, strong performance for, for a, a Democrat there, especially again, given how recent it is that Democrats have even become competitive in a state like Arizona, that Joe Biden just barely won Arizona uh, in 2020 by, you know, significantly less than, than a point. So we still show Mark Kelly, uh, the incumbent Democrat favored to win re-election, something like a three and four uh, favorite, but Blake Masters really has a chance, you know, going back mm-hmm. to some of our earlier discussion, one in four ain't zero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now Nevada, let's do Nevada. Yeah. We keep talking about Nevada and I'm going to keep saying Nevada, Nevada, because last week you said Nevada. So <laughs> Nevada, Nevada. I, I know, I know this is one of those things that if you, if you are on Twitter a lot, you know, you can get made fun <laughs> of. And, uh, I, I know, uh, I, I don't think I've ever been inside the, the state, uh, the state borders of, of ne- ne- Nevada, Nevada. 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 We can tell. Yeah. Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> so, so forgive me. I, I mean nothing against the, uh, the good people of, of Nevada. Uh, but uh, over that, uh, over the course of the past week, we haven't seen a ton of movement in that race that right now we have Catherine Cortez Masto, who's the incumbent Democrat running for reelection, favored by, I think, literally a, a tenth of a point or something in our forecast. Um, so that race is essentially, I think, the closest to a pure coin flip right now. Um, Nevada is a, a state that um, Joe Biden won by, I think, a smaller by a smaller than expected margin in 2020, that going into election night 2020, I think over at DDHQ, we had all expected Biden to win Nevada pretty easily. And he did win, but by less than we thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not at all surprising, I think, that as we approach a midterm year, again, Biden is not popular. Uh, in Catherine Cortez Masto, we have a incumbent Democratic senator who I think it's not unfair to say sort of has a very generic uh, profile in terms of who, uh, you know, what her role has been in the Senate, that Mm -hmm. she's a very reliable um, party line vote for uh, the Democratic caucus and in the Senate. I don't think it's, I think it's fair to say she hasn't really carved out a unique identity for herself in the way that some other senators maybe have. Um, But she's facing Adam Laxalt, who is, I think it's also fair to say, a quite generic Republican who has not really staked out a particularly unique identity for himself. And, uh, you know, in some of these other states um, where we have Herschel Walker or John Fetterman, these candidates who have these sort of unique uh, brand, unique personal profiles. Um, Nevada is interesting because we don't really have that. We have, it's a, as, as I think I've said before on past weeks, it's the closest we have to a pure generic R versus a generic D contest. And I think it's telling there that she's 
probably the most endangered uh, Democratic incumbent, that the three Democratic incumbents who are in mortal danger are uh, Mark Kelly, Raphael Warnock, and Catherine Cortez Masto. And she's probably in the most danger out of all three of those. Close contest between her and Raphael Warnock, but she's probably in the most danger. And I think it's telling that uh, she is in the most danger of losing her reelection, and she is facing the Republican who has sort of the most vanilla, bland profile, sort of as it were. Okay, let's turn to the House. So we talked about how, you know, the House model basically is informed by environmental factors. But are there any specific races uh, you want to you want to shine the spotlight on right now that can tell us something about the way the house, how house races are moving. So every week I try and find a few house races where something interesting is happening or they can tell us something interesting about what's happening nationally. And one I wanted to talk about was Connecticut 5. So Connecticut's 5th congressional district is basically northwestern Connecticut. That If, if you're familiar with Connecticut geography, this is basically Danbury. Um, and Connecticut has, I believe, five congressional districts total, and they've been controlled by all been controlled by Democrats for, I believe, over a decade now. And Connecticut's 5th congressional district district, while to the left of the nation overall, is Connecticut's most competitive congressional district. And this week, we moved this race where um, Johanna Hayes, who's the incumbent Democrat who's running for re-election, um, she, there was a new poll that came out this week that actually had her trailing her Republican challenger. And so we moved that race this week from likely D to, to lean D. And so this is the kind of place you could look at that, uh, you know, if we had a red wave that trended, if the red wave crested really, really high, Connecticut's fifth congressional district is the sort of seat that's flipping that. If we're in a scenario where Republicans are somehow hitting 237, 238, 240 House seats, Connecticut's 5th District are the kinds of places that are flipping. And people like Johanna Hayes are the people who are losing. Um, So this is an interesting place to look at in that, you know, there's been some discussion around places in New England that have been really Democratic, pretty uh, liberal for for a long time, but maybe you're a, have a somewhat lower educational attainment, are somewhat more rural. And Connecticut's fifth district around Denbury is a place like that, where it's very white. Uh, sort of the typical white person who lives there is significantly more uh, liberal than the average sort of Caucasian person who lives in the United States overall. And so you could imagine if the behavior of that group of people converged to what it is closer nationally, then this is the kind of district uh, that could flip potentially and become more palatable for a Republican victory. Okay. Let's talk about something that's on everybody's mind right now, which is early voting. Um, a lot of people listening to this podcast have probably already cast their ballots because that's, you know, that's who they are. Uh, according to the University of Florida's U.S. Elections Project, over 21 million people have voted early uh, in the 2022 cycle. That's as of Monday morning. That is 13 million over the last week. A uh, University of Florida professor who runs the Elections Project, Michael McDonald, told ABC News that they are expecting turnout to be similar to 2018. What can early voting tell us about what we should expect to see and what can it not tell us about what we should expect to see? So whenever we get questions at Decision Desk HQ around early voting, we always sort of push back uh, a, a bit to say that, you know, you have to be very careful about looking at early voting numbers, because if you look at a particular election and you see early voting is high, early voting is low, that doesn't, that tells you surprisingly little about what actually is the composition of who those people are voting for, especially in a, a post-COVID, post-pandemic America. There are huge, huge partisan splits uh, between who votes early and who votes on election day. That the typical, Didn't used to be that way. Didn't used to be that way. If right. you think back even even 2018, 2016, you know, there were some, I think there were some skews then, but it wasn't really super dramatic. Whereas post COVID, post, you know, 2020, 
2020 world, it is super duper stark that, uh, you know, one of my favorite examples, if you look at, uh, you know, of course, Joe Biden narrowly won Georgia in 2020. But if you look at people who voted uh, absentee by mail in Georgia, Joe Biden won that group in Georgia by like 20 points. He lost the early election day vote by, I think, one point. And the election day vote in Georgia, he lost by, I think, 20 points or something. Um, So there are, even in states that are very closely divided, there are massive, massive skews in terms of how people vote. So this is all a long-winded way of saying that, uh, you know, just looking at early voting numbers in and of itself is not super informative because the typical person who votes early is someone who would probably have just voted on election day anyway. That sometimes you hear people in the business talk about, you know, vote cannibalization. To what extent is early voting producing new votes uh, versus to what extent are people who would just vote on election day just voting earlier? And a massive share of people who are voting early are just people who would have voted on election day anyway. Um, There's also this temptation to look at these early voting numbers to try and gauge, you know, what is the excitement in the electorate? What is the total turnout likely to be? Because if you go back to 2012, 2008, what you might call the Obama era of American politics, there was very much a kind of folk wisdom that good turnout uh, or that high turnout, good for Democrats, low turnout, bad for Democrats. And even now, there are a lot of people who sort of think from this perspective that if the turnout is high, that's good for Democrats. If the turnout is low, that's bad for Democrats. And that's really not the case anymore, that you have to remember we live in a post-educational polarization world now where there are lots of Republicans who have sort of a lower average educational attainment and lots of Democrats who have a higher than average educational attainment. And so when you increase – and so people who have lower levels of educational uh, attainment tend to be more marginal voters, people who don't necessarily turn out to vote as much. And so if turnout is high, then that potentially just means that there are lots of marginal Republican voters who are turning out to vote. And this is not a hypothetical that in 2020, I remember turnout in Texas was very, very high in 2020. And at Decision Desk HQ, we were looking back in 2020 and seeing this monstrous turnout in Texas. And we looked at each other and thought, gosh, maybe Biden actually could win Texas. Who knows? Um, but then a election day came and like that was not what happened that Trump won Texas like pretty comfortable pretty comfortably and if you had just looked at that at those turnout numbers and applied you know 2007 era folk wisdom to those numbers, you would have thought Democrats were going to win. And that was not the right way to think about it. Um, So looking at early voting numbers, you know, to summarize that a bit, uh, you know, is dangerous because number one, you don't know who's turning out to, you don't necessarily know the partisan composition of who's turning out to vote. A lot of those people are people who would have just voted later anyway. And also if you're trying to gauge overall turnout levels from that early voting information, you know, you can't easily map, you know, high turnout is good for one party or the other. It's not that simple. Okay, so in terms of the balance of powers, it sits right now. The model's got the Senate at uh, netting out at 51 Republican, 49 Democrat. That's up from 50-50 last week. So we've got a change in the predicted balance of power in the Senate. And we've got the House at uh, 230 Republican, 205 Democrat. Uh, and that's different from uh, – that's basically a seat off from last week, one, you know, one down for Republicans. So the overall House outlook – uh, has remained substantially unchanged, as you mentioned at the top of the show, for the last several weeks. Republicans likely to have about a 25-seat majority. Uh, but it looks like there's still a lot of movement happening in the Senate races, as we've talked about, that are going to determine the balance of power. And so I wonder, what are the things you're going to be looking for in these final seven days, in this final stretch leading up to Election Day, in those races that we talked about over the next week? What 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 do you got? What do you got your eye on that's going to indicate? And and maybe we should leave folks with a you know here's your you know uh, here's your cheat sheet for how you like how things are going. 
here's what you ought to be paying attention to and how you're going to know how likely it is that Democrats are actually going to hang on to the Senate. So there's more, as we talked about, like there's more volatility in the Senate because the Senate forecast depends on so many fewer races than in the House. If one House race changes, it doesn't change the top line a whole lot. Whereas if Nevada changes a lot, that changes the top line Senate forecast a lot. So I would say looking at this final week, you know, right now we have Nevada Senate as something like 50-50. If we see a lot of velocity toward Adam Laxalt in Nevada, that's really cluing us in that as these uh, undecided voters who are making up their minds at the last minute, uh, if they're choosing Adam Laxalt, in large numbers. If Catherine Cortez Masto looks like she's going to go down by three, four, five points, then that's really debilitating the Democrats' odds of holding on to the Senate. Um, similarly, one state that I want to highlight a little bit more is Arizona, because we've seen over the past three or four months, uh, Democrats' odds really decline in Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania. Uh, Arizona sort of stands out as the one place where Democrats are continuing to appear to be continuing to overperform the fundamentals significantly. Um, that I would look to see, are there polls uh, that start coming in where it looks like um, Mark Kelly might really be in, in trouble? Because if we enter into a scenario where Mark Kelly looks like he's in trouble and Catherine Cortez Master looks like she's in trouble and Raphael Warnock looks like he could be in trouble and John Fetterman looks like he's going to lose, then uh, we enter into a scenario that looks potentially really bleak for, for Democrats where uh, Republicans potentially come out with you know 53 seats uh, versus 47 for, for the Democrats. So I think that is to say, I would look to see if the velocity uh, that we've seen over the past few weeks toward Republicans continues, that I'm going to be looking a lot at polls from Pennsylvania, not even so much to see what the top line is, but to see if directionally things continue to trend toward Republicans. Uh, looking at top line results in places like Arizona to see like, oh, does Mark Kelly look like he's holding on to these on average three to four point margins, or does Blake Masters start to look like he's actually running even? Uh, do we start to see significant advantage, uh, significant uh, winning margins for Adam Laxalt in Nevada? Uh, this is to say, you know, do we start to see Republicans seem like they're really putting away some of these races or do they stay close all the way to the end? Kyle Williams, Decision Desk HQ. We uh, will talk to you on Election Day, man. Thank you so much. I'm excited. <laughs> Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.